So thank you so much for joining me, uh, Dr. Remy Adekoya. Uh, Dr. Remy Adekoya, he teaches politics at the University of York, and he um, has written a, a couple books over the last few years, intervening uh, very interestingly in, in the uh, race discussion in Britain. His first one was Biracial Britain, A Different Way of Looking at Race. And his new book is not about whiteness, it's about wealth, how the economics of race really work. Uh, and so I'm very excited to dive deep into uh, uh, this discussion with him. And he has often got very uh, fascinating insights um, about this discussion. So thank you so much for joining me, Remy. Thanks for having me. So the first question is, just, just give us a summary about this book, why you wanted to write this book, because you know, I, reading it, I found it very, very interesting in, in, a, in a context where so much of the discussion is about um, identity or you know how many people are uh, how many black people are here or there this is this is about wealth this is about money this is about concrete material questions in, in, a, in a very yeah uh, intellectual discussion so, so give, give us a summary first of all so the summary I try to ask myself you know the question you know because there's been lots of talk around you know race and racism over the last couple of years and so I try to ask myself two questions. You know, first, what really lies at the core of people's dissatisfaction with this race issue? That's number one. And then number two, what lies at the core of the cause of that dissatisfaction? Mm -hmm. And so I came up with the first answer that while different people define racism in different ways today, and even within the anti-racist school of thought, there's different sort of interpretations of what exactly constitutes racism. One common theme which you find here in the UK or in the US or amongst Africans discussing the race issue is that general feeling that we still live in a world in which there is an informal racial hierarchy, a kind of racial order that essentially, you know, white people are placed at the top Black people are placed at the bottom and everyone else is positioned somewhere in between. And this is a feeling which, like I said, you'll find amongst um, Black people here in the UK, amongst African-Americans. And if you go to Kenya and ask people, you know, they will tell you that's generally speaking how they think the world still works. And so, OK, fine. So this is what lies at sort of the core of the dissatisfaction. This is the, the, the common theme that sort of gets people upset and causes so much anger and frustration. Do I then uh, agree that there is such a racial hierarchy still in place? This was a question I asked myself. Mm. I came to the conclusion that yes, there is something like that. It's no longer formalized, of course, nothing like what it was during slavery or, or nothing like what it was during um, colonialism or apartheid, but there is some kind of informal order in place. There is a kind of informal hierarchy in place, I told myself. Mm. Okay, so next question now is what sustains this hierarchy? So this hierarchy has been pretty much in place for close to five centuries now, going back to the slave trade. So why is it still in place, even though there have been countless moral arguments delivered against it, even though most people openly say they are against it, including most white people? If you ask them, you know, do you support um, the idea of racial order? They say, of course not. So, okay, what then sustaining it? And then I came to the conclusion that, okay, look, all hierarchies, all human hierarchies, reflect differences in power and status. And so the question now is, okay, what gives certain racial groups more power and status than other racial groups? And in this case, we'd be speaking of, of, of the white group, broadly speaking. So, okay, what is it 
that enables white people to still maintain that position at the top mm. of this informal hierarchy. Okay. And the answer to that, which I came up with, was wealth. Because at the end of the day, we live in a world that runs on money. We live in a capitalist world, and a capitalist world runs on money. And even when there were communist systems, they also had to run on money also. And so essentially, we live in a world that runs on money. And so the possession of money, the possession of wealth, to a significant degree, decides who has power and agency in this world, both on individual terms. So someone who is a billionaire usually has much more power and agency than someone who is a minimum wage earner at the individual level. And if we look at national levels, of course, a country like Switzerland, which is an extremely rich country, has much more agency within the world and within various organizations than a country like Rwanda, for instance, which is a much poorer nation. And then we now get to racial groups. But okay, obviously all nations are made up of diverse groups. But at the end of the day, if you look at the world map, uh, you find out that every nation practically, while made up of different ethnic groups, has a clear racial majority. And so at the end of the day, Britain, despite being a diverse nation, uh, is an 82% white nation. Mm. Europe is 90% white. Uh, even the US, which is by far the most diverse nation uh, in the Western Hemisphere, depending on how you calculate it, is roughly 70% white. If you look at Africa, it's predominantly black. Mm. And essentially, if you look at all the nations, you find you know, there's a clear coloration, correlation between you know, racial group majority and nation. So, okay, I now started looking at the figures of wealth figures. Okay, how do you now ascertain wealth figures, you know, which racial group has what exactly? And of course, it's not an exact science, uh, but if you look at national uh, wealth statistics, you know, I, I, I found them uh, quite a lot of that. You see clearly that the quote-unquote white majority world has a huge amount of a wealth advantage over much of the rest of the world and certainly over much of the black majority countries. So simple example, countries like Britain and Germany um, have larger GDPs than the entire continent of Africa. And Africa is where 90% of the world's black population live. Mm. And here you have single European states, Britain, Germany, bigger GDPs than, than all of Africa. In fact, by my calculations, if you added up all the GDPs of all the black majority countries in the world, so that those in Africa and those in the Caribbean, their combined GDPs will still be smaller than Germany's $4 trillion GDP. Wow. You know, so that's the kind of world we live in. And then if you look into, you know, if you go into figures, I went into GDP per capita figures. I went into household wealth figures, not just within the Western world, you know, within all the continents, within South America also, there's a clear correlation there of wealth to racial group. Mm. And the reason why this matters in the whole race debate is because there is a correlation of, you know, the wealth sort of hierarchy maps onto race. And that's where we start to get into the sort of nitty gritty of it. And so, okay, fine. That's the big picture. The question then becomes, okay, how does this affect everyday life? Mm. Yeah. How does this affect people's everyday lives? And that's why in, in each of the, um, each chapter essentially dedicated to a key sphere of our world. So media, uh, I had a chapter on media, a chapter on technology, a chapter on knowledge production, so academia, a chapter on international influence, a chapter on, on respect, on the whole notion of respect, because also a lot of the dissatisfaction 
uh, when it comes to race, and you find this especially amongst Black people, but not only, is that idea that, you know, oh, we are not respected as much as, or treated as respectfully as much as, for instance, white Westerners are. And so I had a chapter on each of these themes showing specifically how the wealth divide and that wealth advantage um, which whites have, how that translates into everyday dynamics on the ground. Mm, yeah, mm. And that's essentially what the book is about. No, oh, there's there's a lot to to chew on and, and unpick there, Remy. <laughs> I, 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 so one, there's a few things I want to touch upon. So uh, one of the things that I thought was quite interesting, uh, and I guess what perhaps sets you apart from some of the other critics of the c contemporary race debate, and, and maybe not, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I, you, you thought that the Black Lives Matter movement essentially spoke to a truth, a truth about what you described as the global disregard for, for blackness. And I, I find that very interesting because I think some people that have been quite critical of the uh, contemporary race discussion in, in, a, in Western society have essentially argued that whilst uh, prejudice and discrimination remains a problem, you know, it, it is obviously fundamentally transformed from, from what it was previously. And really uh, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is sub, in some ways a kind of overcorrection or, or a kind of exaggeration um, or, or just completely confected as a whole. But, but for you, you feel that actually um, that what, whilst there's been opportunistic actors in the movement and so on, the the actual uh, basis for the uh, the sadness or the the rage or the anger it, it is based off of a reality. It is based off of a reality. Look, no movement resonates with a wide mass of people unless it resonates with the emotions they feel mm. about an issue. And it was it was really sort of um, visible for me in the reactions to the George Floyd killing on African Twitter. Mm. So we all know what went on, you know, on British Twitter. You know, any 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 member of your audience knows what went on on British Twitter. Uh, a lot of people also know what went on on American Twitter. But for me, what was really sort of striking was what was going on on African Twitter. Mm. And there were Africans, you know, Kenyans, Nigerians, Zambians, South Africans. You know, people who have never met a white American police officer in their lives are most probably never going to meet a white American police officer in their lives because they live in Kenya, Nigeria or Zambia. But who sort of, um, you know, came in, in, into discussion and expressed that kind of rage, which you could see an anger and frustration as at what had happened to George Floyd in America, based on that feeling that ah, these people, these white people, um, quote unquote, um, that's it. They don't value us. They don't think we matter. They don't think our lives matter. For them, black lives, you know, are simply, you know, dispensable. It's, it, it's not, it doesn't have the same value as a white life. Mm. Yeah. People feel that. They feel that. They, they feel that in them. And that was clear. And that is for me sort of, you know, undeniable. Despite the fact that, as you say, you know, people within that um, BLM movement have, you know, abused it and all sorts of all, all sorts of um, nonsense going on there on that side. But that doesn't mean that they didn't tap into a real feeling, you know. So, so that was that. So that's um, so that's something I would say. And you know, in a country like Britain, you know, it's also important, of course, that there's, there's that general picture. I can perhaps understand why some may have thought it a, a, a radical sort of overcorrection or exaggeration here in Britain, because most probably, I would say, Britain is probably the best, if one of the best, or if not uh, the best countries in the world, uh, you know, to be a person of color and to be a black person. 
yeah, um, as a minority. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I can understand why, you know, some people in, in Britain could have thought, hey, no, come on, you know, it's a bit of an exaggeration, you know, I mean, this racism, you know, it's not that bad, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, there's a couple of people here and there, but, you know, you know but look, you know, I have an international perspective. I grew up in Nigeria, so I know sort of what the attitudes are sort of in Nigeria and the kind of feelings, you know, the complexes that exist and everything, you know, towards, you know, white Western world, let's call it. Mm. Then I lived in Poland. My mom was Polish. So I saw there, you know, there the race thing is in your face. Mm. It's not like here in Britain, where there's, you know, all, all this, you know, political correctness and people are polite and all that. It's in your face. And they let you know, Polish people will let you know that, that look, they don't rate black people the same way they rate white people. Yeah, they'll let you know. Uh, and I've traveled widely across Europe also. Um, you know, I've been to the likes of, you know, Germany, France, Holland, etc. And in all those places too on the continent, look, you, you'd have to be blind to say that order is not there, that implicit racial order is not there. So it is probably least felt here in Britain. And so this is why, you know, people who discuss, you know, race in Britain, if they look at it only within that parochial British context, could think, ah, no, come on, this is a bit of an exaggeration. But if you go beyond Britain to the continent of Europe, and then you go to America and all these other places, you will see that actually, you know, this thing, you know, it's real. Mm. Well, so 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 on that point then, because I, I think that's very interesting. And I, I actually do think your argument about the international perspective missing um, in the discussion is a very, very important one. But I, I, I guess some people would essentially push back and say, who who's fundamentally responsible for the 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 position of of a uh, black African countries in, in the world today? Now we we can point to uh, historical legacies of of colonialism and slavery, but there are also um, countries, uh, whether that's Singapore or, or or other countries in in Asia that um, experience forms of uh, colonialism, um, but have actually completely taken responsibility for their societies and and transformed their that their situation economically. So I guess, could you argue that some of the reason why people may have less interest or less sympathy to the international uh, perspective on this is actually because ultimately there's very little that we can do and, and who's responsible for the problems today? So that's, that's definitely a, a valid point. And the arguments I was making in the book were as much for Western audiences as for black audiences, okay? It's basically to try and show that, look, this thing we keep on repeating, you know, racism, 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 racism. It's become an almost sort of meaningless word, you know, which means everything and which means nothing. So it's not really helpful in our discussions today in trying to find out actually what is going on, uh, why is there so much um, uh, frustration and, you know, what lies at the core of this? Yeah. So I'm trying to show as objectively as I can, what lies at the core of this. And then we can now get into, okay, you know, who, who is responsible, who is not, etc. Mm. The last thing I am is one of those people who come and say, oh, you know, the only reason Africa is poor today or African nations are poor today is because of colonialism and slavery. You know, that's, that's incorrect simply. Uh, and I write there and I acknowledge that, that definitely, you know, African, I mean, I mean post-colonial Africa has, has by and large uh, been a failure. Mm. That's the truth. Mm. And a lot of that, a lot of those feelings have to do with the feelings of African governments that have ruled African countries on the ground. Mm. This is undeniable. And this is something I also think we should be talking about more within also this race debate and that international perspective. Yeah. Mm. 
So that's what I would say to the black audiences that look, at the end of the day, we can't expect anybody to come and solve our problems. You know, nobody's going to come from heaven or there's no, we say we don't want the white saviors. So we definitely can't say we want the white um, uh, people to come and save us from our problems. So that's not going to happen. So that's that. So I'm definitely, it's not about, you know, shirking responsibility at all. It's not about guilt tripping. I don't really think that makes, um, uh, that um, uh, that is really um, uh, that productive, but it's about presenting what I see as a picture of the world and then simply saying, look, the reality is that most of the black nations we're talking about today do not have the financial muscle to get out of the holes they are in. Mm. They simply don't, okay? So, and you know, we all live in this world together. There's, you know, 8 billion of us. Um, there's gonna be, I think, 10 billion of us by 2050. There are certain problems that if not dealt with at some kind of international level, are simply going to continue festering. They're not going to go away. They're not going to disappear. So fine, Britain is an island, but Britain does not exist divorced from the reality of the rest of the world, mm. okay? Yeah. And even within Britain here, this race dynamic is affected by things that are happening at that international level. I'm often surprised at um, what I'd say a kind of almost, you know, so on the one hand, Britain is an international country. There's people from all over the world coming into Britain, from all countries, all corners, etc. But when it comes to sort of analysis of what's going on within Britain, it seems to be restricted only to a look at, I don't know what's happening, you know, within communities of people that were born here mm. and things like that. But, you know, this race thing, it's not just affecting, say, someone like you or someone else who may have been born here. There's people coming in here every day. And I'm not just talking about from black nations. There's people coming in here from white nations also. So there's people coming in here from the EU. There's millions of Eastern Europeans here. There's millions of people from Poland, Czech Republic, etc. They meet with someone who came from Nigeria, who came from Kenya, who came from Pakistan, India. There are certain perceptions they have also of various groups that will affect this race dynamic. It's not just Brits who live in Britain. This is something which seems to be often forgotten. It's not just Brits who live in Britain because this is an international country. And so there's so many foreigners around. So this race thing is going on at various levels. There's black people in this country who the manager in their firm is not a white British person. It's a Polish person. Or it's someone from you know Brazil or it's someone from some other country. And yeah. there's a dynamic also going on there, you know. So, 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 so this is why I'm saying this international perspective, you know, um, is, is, is important. And, and that idea that sort of, you know, Brit, you can discuss race in Britain, just sort of removing Britain from the rest of the world and just focusing on what's going on in here is, you know, I don't think it's going to work in the long run. And so why do you think we've become so incurious then to the situation that is happening and afflicting countries in the global south, the developing world, or, or whatever people, uh, what, what the right term is. Because, I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember that there were these uh, campaigns, you know, Red Cross and, you know, all of these things to try and eradicate all of the uh, material challenges of that's uh, health um, issues that were going on, um, eradicating global poverty, but we, we seemingly just don't hear about those kinds of subjects on a mass kind of global campaign perspective anymore, that, that there isn't um, that same emergent cultural and political movement at the top. 
um, that wants to transform the economic reality uh, for, for for people across the globe. But what, why do you think we no longer uh, feel that same passion for those issues? I think perhaps there is a sense of helplessness, which some people feel, because like you say, so, you know, some people could say, okay, you know, so what could we really do about it? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a sense of helplessness some people feel. Uh, it is a paradox that in a world which is supposed to be globalized, we keep on hearing, where we all have access to social media and internet, and you can check what's going on in India and what's going on in Kenya and what's going on, etc. There does seem to be an inward turn in terms of, um, what we think can be done or what we focus on. Yeah? So on the one hand, we claim to be globalized, but on the other hand, we've gotten extremely parochial with regards to you know, issues we decide to focus on. And the problem with that is that it doesn't really work in this sort of globalized world, which like I say, especially in a country like Britain, I can't even understand this in countries which are still largely very homogeneous. And there are such countries, you know, still in the world, you know, they focus on their problems and, 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 and their nation's relations with the rest of the world. But not in a country like Britain, where, like I said, there's millions of people coming in here every day, you know. So I think um, some people feel a sense of helplessness. And that's why they don't want to um, uh, they don't want to focus on those issues. They think, oh, you know, let's focus on, you know, what's going on here, et cetera. You know, it, it's understandable. I can understand that. Um, but it's um, a little bit uh, delusional in the sense that, again, going back to that, my, uh, my argument, you know, you can't act as if Britain is an island divorced from the rest of the world, because, you know, if Britain doesn't go to the, want to go to the world, the world will come to Britain. And I don't mean that just physically in terms of migration. I mean it in terms of the issues of the world. They will come to Britain. You know, if you're talking global economy, you know, something goes wrong in the US or, you know, in Canada or Russia, there's a war, Russia, Ukraine, you know, it affects Britain, like it or not. And that was something that I thought was very interesting about your book, how you said that if we don't resolve this, that, that you know, we are potentially going to continue to face greater resentments and antagonisms. Could you could you elaborate on that? So you know, um, the question is usually in systems where people feel in status systems mm. where people feel there is um, the system is sort of so strong, so locked in that there is no hope to change it. The reality of the human psyche is that people often sort of you know accept things as they are, pretty much and get on with life. When people start to challenge social systems and status systems is when they sense cracks within the system. So when they see, oh, you know, there's something changing here in the dynamic. And actually we think if we push, we could change things within the status system. And of course, when I say we, I mean the groups that find themselves in the lower strata of those systems, mm -hmm. you know, and this is something which has been shown in sort of social psychology and, 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 other, and other spheres. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, um, if we're talking 20th century, you know, 70s, 1970s, 80s, 1990s, 2000s, you know, the general feeling among most racial minorities within the West was that, look, um, this race thing exists, this racism thing exists, um, there's probably limited things we can do to change it, yeah, to change that status system. We just have to try and survive within it. What's changing now is the demographic equation. So A, 
the population numbers of the ethnic minorities or the racial minorities within the West are rising rapidly. So like I said, depending on how you count it in the US. So for instance, in 1950, 90% um, of the US was white. 90% of the American population was white in 1950. By 2045, it's expected um, uh, the white share of the population will drop to less than 50%. Yeah. So that's from 90% to less than 50% within the space of less than a century. Wow. In Britain, you now have a racial minority and a population of 18%. So it's way, way lower back, you know, in the 1950s was way under 10%. So what is now happening, the reality that's now happening that I would say um, uh, th th there's no escaping is that there's now pushback from within racial minority groups within the West, from the educated elements of racial minority groups within the West, activists, intellectuals, etc., in trying to force a change in that state of system and sort of end this racial order as they see, because they see themselves having more numbers, because there is now hope that actually we can, we can actually push now and get that change. So, and with the trend of the demographics trending towards, like I say, a higher proportion of racial minority, you know, in, within the population, that's only going to embolden the activists and the leaders of these groups to be demanding, you know, more and more and saying, no, we don't accept this. No, we don't accept that, etc. America is the prime example of that. And those agitations, those racial agitations from in America are only going to grow with the numbers of the racial minorities in America. Look, this is a reality, which I don't think um, anyone can sort of, you know, escape. It's sort of denialism. I would say that's on the white part to think they can escape that. They're not going to escape that because there's a lot of anger there and frustration. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so this is not an issue that is going to go away. No. This race issue is not an issue that's going to go away. So that's within the Western societies after there's a rising proportion of racial minority populations. And that is what is driving a lot of this agitation, especially when you go to places like London, you know, people will come out on the streets in London and an average I'm a black person, they, you know, they look around them and they say, hey, you know, like half of this city is people who are non-white, yeah? So there's plenty of us, you know, they might forget that actually, if you look at the whole Britain, it's, you know, just 18% who are not white. If you look just in London, yeah. it will seem like, you know, it's almost half and half or Birmingham or Manchester. And then people say, so we should be pushing for more. Why don't we have this? Why don't we have that? Why don't we have this? Why don't we have that? Why don't we have this? And they start pushing for more because, you know, there's now enough of us to push. And so that's at that Western level. Now, if you now look at the global level, in 1950, again, uh, Africans represented 10% of the world's population. Yeah. So just one in 10 people in the world were African in 1950. In that same 1950, 30% um, of the world, so roughly one in three people in the world, lived either in Europe or North America, mm. which were predominantly white at the time. So you could roughly say that roughly a third of the world was white in 1950. Mm. Just one in 10 were black. Now by 2050, it's expected that the population of Africa will represent 25% of the entire global population. It already represents 17% uh, today. It's going to go up to 25%. So one in four people in the world are going to be black. And on the other hand, if you talk about the white population, it's gone from 30% to roughly 11% of the global population today, or 13%, I think, of the global population today, and is expected to drop to around 10%. 
So by 2050, which is not a very far time, you are essentially going to have at least 25% of the world that is black and less than 10% of the world that is white. So blacks are generally going to outnumber whites three to one. These are demographic realities out there. This is going to create even more of a push. This is going to create even more agitation. This is going to create even more sort of anger and frustration among, let's say, that black group. And there's also other groups out there. We can't forget also about Indians and there's Chinese people and Arabs and all sorts of groups. But the whites are generally a shrinking minority in the world. And there is going to be increased pressure to try and change that status quo in which people perceive that whites are positioned at the top. Mm. So again, this is not going anywhere. And the numbers are not working in the favors in favor of the white population, you know, which means I would say that if something is not done to address some of these underlying fundamental issues going on today, it's not going to, you know, it's, it's going to cause only more problems. Like I said, we'll simply have in 20 years, uh, two, three times more anger and frustration than we have today. And this will affect international relations and will affect also Britain within international relations. Again, not an island that can just is going to be cut off from the rest of the world. If Britain wants to thrive, it will need to have good relations with countries in Africa, countries in Asia, and other and, and other peoples of the world, you know. And this race issue will always be somewhere there underneath, because governments of those countries also have to respond to the agitations of their own people and to the attitudes of their own people, you know. So, so that's why, like I say, the numbers tell a clear picture. Well, we, we, well, we, this, we don't have lots of time, um, and there's mm-hmm. so much to unpick there. And I really recommend everybody buy this book. Um, it's not about whiteness; it's about wealth, um, the economics of race. I, before we close, just, do you have just three? recommendations that you what, what would you say to uh, a, a Britain watching this what what could they do um what could they say to change the course um to ensure that we don't create a a, a spiral of of resentment and agitation in the future that we actually move forward towards a much more kind of cohesive society um that takes these material questions seriously um, so what, what few things would you, would you recommend, would you say to people? So what I would say definitely, and I, I, I'd say this, you know, to, to, to black populations um, uh, anywhere and also, you know, to people in Britain is that A, while um, despair is not an option, neither is wishful thinking, neither is fantasy. And so on the one hand, the first message I'd have to, because, you know, black wealth can only really be created in in significant amounts in Africa. That's where 90% of the world's black population lives. And so definitely the first onus would be on African leaders to essentially clean up their act and create an enabling environment for wealth creation. That's one, that's the fundamental. But let's even say that happens. And there is a younger generation of leaders now rising up in Africa who realize the things that need to be done and realize why our position is low in the world. So there is a generation of of emerging leaders like that. So, but okay, let's even say that's done and Africa starts being ruled better. At the end of the day, like I said, it still, it lacks the financial muscle to solve most of its problems. It is going to require some kind of Marshall plan 
is what I would say, to be able to sort of boost wealth creation on the continent. And this is in three spheres, which it really needs in, in the sphere of education. So there's huge education gaps there in what is the youngest um, uh, um, population um, uh, in the world, in youngest continent in the world, huge gaps in infrastructure. And there's some cooperation with the Chinese that is sort of alleviating sort of this, but definitely um, much more needs to be done. And huge gaps with regards to access to capital. So Africans are among the most entrepreneurial people in the world. And in, in a survey, which I cite in the book of people between the age of 18 to 24 in Africa, 61% uh, of them would like to start a business in the next five years. What they lack is access to capital. And I'm not talking about huge capital. It's not people who want to go and get a loan for $100,000 in the bank or for even $50,000. It may even be a loan for $5,000, the equivalent of $5,000 or even $3,000 to be able to open a small business, they still don't have access to that because there isn't that kind of capital on the continent. So if we do want to create, because at the end of it, it depends on us what kind of world we want to create. If we do want to create a world in which there is a possibility for the poorest groups and the groups that are positioned lowest on the hierarchy today to excel, there is going to be a need for some kind of sit down between the rich countries and you know rich corporations and perhaps even rich individuals and those countries for what can be done to facilitate wealth creation in those countries. This is something that would need to be done. And obviously Britain as the fifth largest economy in the world today, as one of the um, still major powers definitely um, uh, within Europe, definitely has a very constructive role it could play that. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just about, oh, just giving money. You know, that's not about it, because at the end of the day, it's about fighting for working towards a global prosperity. Mm. You know, Britain also prospers if, you know, it benefits Britain more if there's 100 rich countries in the world compared to if there's just 40 rich countries in the world. Because mm. if you've got 100 rich countries in the world, you can trade with all of them and you can sell all of them things. Yeah. Uh -oh. So, you know, so... The, no, no. So, 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 like I say, if you're thinking long term, really big picture, long term, Britain has a huge role it could play here, not just for historical reasons, but also because of its economic, is because of its economic um, uh, might today. And so, this is what I tell you know, um, uh, Britons to do and to sort of try and you know work towards and you know and help towards. That's what I'd say. Thank you so much, Remy. There's so much more that I would have loved to have spoken to you about. Sorry to, uh, we've had to cut this short, but. We recommend everybody buy this fantastic book. I highly recommend it. It is so interesting. It it really kind of changes your perspective on, on why these issues um, are, are persisting, what is causing them and the things that we can do about them. And it's very well researched. Lots of very uh, fascinating and important statistics and, and data there as well. So thank you so much, Remy, for joining us on the podcast.